I would love to have you take your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Jeremiah. We're going to be dealing with another area of, well, theology, rich theology today. So I hope that uh, you are ready to roll. Jeremiah 31 is where we're going to start. The sermon notes in your bulletin will be a significant help to you as we get started here. Week number three in our summer preaching series called We Believe. And as you know, we're going to be touching on 10 different areas of theology. So we're using, in some cases, some cool $5 theology words, giving some definition to some of that. We'll do that again today. But we're wanting to take a look at 10 areas. Now, uh, the same struggle today that we've had other weeks. So much to say, whole semesters in Bible college or seminary, you have 30 minutes. So, wow, there'll be a bunch that we won't be able to get to, but we'll try to focus on some today the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, and why would you care? So Holy Spirit, two weeks ago, we talked about theology proper, that is the doctrine of God. Last week, Christology, the doctrine of Christ. And today, pneumatology, which is a doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Pneuma is that Greek word for spirit or breath or wind, We saw some of that mentioned in some of the songs we sing earlier, breath, breath of God, sometimes people sing and so on. All of those based on the the Greek word pneuma, that would be part of Holy Spirit, pneumatology. Next week with Pastor Ben, homartiology, the doctrine of sin. You'll want to be here for that. That'll encourage your little heart. You will, because you're heading to Jesus, so it works out okay. But today, pneumatology. So I want to read the, the, the statement that's here, say a couple things about it. We'll pray together and uh, get going. There's a review, of course. I'll let you look at that. But our church doctrinal statement says this about the Holy Spirit. We believe that the Holy Spirit is a divine person who convicts the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment, and that he is the supernatural agent in regeneration, that's new life, baptizing all believers into the body of Christ, immersing, placing all believers into the body of Christ, indwelling, and sealing them unto the day of redemption. So says our church doctrinal statement. I, I, I press on the, uh, the word divine person for a moment just to give definition here, okay? Because sometimes when people think about the Holy Spirit, they, they get their theology, I hate to say it, they get their theology from Hollywood. So Star Wars, can you imagine, speaks of the force. And sometimes people watch movies like that and they end up going, look, It's Christian theology, the force. It's like the Holy Spirit. And you go, oh, no. No, that's terrible. That's not it at all. It misses by a mile. Because the force is, is, well, it's an impersonal force, like a magnetic pole. And there's nobody home. See? But in the Christian doctrine of the Holy Spirit, somebody's home. Hence the term person. There's person there. There's personality who can be grieved, a personality who can be loved and cared for and who loves and cares for you. So there's somebody home. It's not just this oozy goozy feeling or power. So anyway, massive difference between the force be with you and the person of the Holy Spirit minister to your heart. Big difference. So please don't give me Hollywood theology, not so good. Well, we're going to talk about pneumatology as a discipline and give some parameters, 
And then there are a couple different movements we're going to go to to try to narrow it down and get our hands around some things I I hope that are helpful to us today. I want to pray for us for God's direction, and we will jump right in here, all right? Our Father, how we need your strength and your energy and your help today. Uh, All who are involved in day camp this week is either as staff or helpers or as parents running their kids back and forth. Uh, We're pretty tired. Uh, It's been a busy week. A lot has gone on. But we count on the energizing and enabling ministry of the Spirit of God even in this time here, that you would help us as we think and as we listen, as we participate, as we respond. So, our Father, use this time for our good. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So looking at the section called A Lesson in Pneumatology, I'm saying to begin with, it's always disappointing to me when people think about the Holy Spirit, the person and work of the Holy Spirit, they tend to think of areas of disagreement. Some of that's based on a past and different churches and different understandings of the Holy Spirit, how evidence of the Holy Spirit is displayed, spiritual gifts, and so on. People often think of areas of disagreement. I say that's unfortunate because even with those areas where there's disagreement, there's so many, so many areas of agreement. And uh, I don't want to get lost in the areas of disagreement, some of which I have mentioned here Two significant areas that I think I would say for study and discussion that we will not step into much, but I want to acquaint you with two key areas that really do matter. Some of you are are, uh, uh, diligent students of the Bible, and maybe you've been a believer for a while, and you kind of work hard at understanding some of these things. So two areas I would encourage you to be thinking about as you understand more about the the work of the Holy Spirit, one is Old Testament and New Testament. It is demonstrably clear that there is a difference between the way the Holy Spirit operated in the Old Testament and the New. So what are those differences? What are the commonalities? This is really a big deal. Some of this we'll see today, where you see Old Testament things, and then you see something change. And I, I press on this because... Many people, let's just say, forget that the Bible is a story. It's a whole story. Genesis to Revelation. It's not just little bits and pieces thrown together by some random you know, act of, of people through the years. No, there's a whole story here from Genesis to Revelation. The truth about God, what he loves and what he doesn't love, is constant throughout. Uh, God doesn't change in who he is and what he is like. But some of the ways in which God is operating... So, for example, Old Testament, he works with the nation of Israel. And then uh, you find in the New Testament, God works with the church. And that's a whole new thing. It's called the mystery in Ephesians 3. Something new that God is doing. And it's, it's revealed. So Israel and then the church. Nobody made that up. If you just read the Bible, you see it. It's really obvious. And then there are all kinds of hints, some of which we'll see today, that God is yet again going to deal with the nation of Israel in a whole new way. So you kind of read the whole story. You see God as a constant, but changing movements along the way. People get lost sometimes because they grab this part and grab that part and say, well, uh, who can make sense of it? Well, actually, if you want to get good at any book, I don't care what book it is. If you want to get good at that book, you might want to study it a little bit. Ditto with the Bible. So there's a story being unfolded. Pay attention to the storyline, and you'll be better off for it. So Old Testament, New Testament, we call that in theology the progress of revelation. So that's a thing to discuss about the way the Holy Spirit works. More on that in a bit. And then the other element here that I'm giving you, uh, important to know the difference between descriptive and prescriptive elements in the Bible. People get lost here all the time. 
Descriptive are things that the Bible describes that are not necessarily prescribed for you to do too. Uh, Jesus said to Peter, get out of the boat and walk. That is on the water. That is not God's word to you. Um, you could give it a shot, but you would join Peter in taking a bath. But, but that's a silly example, I suppose. But people sometimes do this in other areas. Well, it says here this, so therefore we should do the same. It's like, man, did you read the rest of the story or just that little part? And enough people read little parts and then say this. To me, that means. And a whole bunch of the rest of us go, well, who cares? Who, who cares? To you, that means. Does that mean that's really what it meant? Did the author mean that? What did the author mean? Especially the divine author. So, well, to me, yeah, well, to me it's great, but you're not the authority. The word of God is. Descriptive and prescriptive. The early church did not meet in church buildings. There were synagogues and then in houses. In fact, if you study the early church for a couple hundred years, church fathers and so on, church buildings didn't really take hold till the early 300s. Do you know that? Huh, that's kind of fascinating. There are places churches met, but not like church buildings. Well, then the early church, should we be like the early church? Well, be careful with that. Depends. Maybe you should, maybe you shouldn't. Depends on what you mean. So descriptive describes what happened. Prescriptive says, go and do likewise. So pay attention to this as you read your Bible. And it'll it'll help you make better sense of, of the whole scripture. Otherwise, you're picking and choosing what could be somebody else's mail again We'll probably get around to that. So today's main topic then, what key truths should every child of God know about the Holy Spirit? So I'm going to suggest that there are several things, and that's going to be our focus today. So I wanted to go big picture, pneumatology, kind of a, a, this, this category of theology, and we're going to drill it down here. I want to go first of all, Jeremiah 31, and we're going to quickly move to Ezekiel 36 and then head into the New Testament. But I want you to see a couple things from the Old the Old Testament, the Older Testament, okay? The Earlier Testament. The Earlier Testament is something you should still study. Um, it's a wonderful revelation of God and his purposes. So in Jeremiah 31, there is what's called the New Covenant. It's in the Old Testament prophets. It's looking to a future day when the Spirit of God is going to do some new things, Okay? And by the way, Jesus made reference to this in a text most of us are very familiar with. When Jesus was with the disciples at what we call the Last Supper, and he said, often overlooked, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. This cup is the new covenant. He was begging you to remember Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36. We typically don't. So Merry Christmas. Today, you get to go here. So I'm going to read Jeremiah 31 then. Here it is, uh, words of what the Bible calls a new covenant. Behold, the days are coming. Future, future time. Not here yet. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. That's the Bible's first big redemptive event, looking ahead to the major one. That's Jesus. My covenant, he says, which they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Here it is. I will put my law within them, inside. I'll write it on their hearts. I'll be their God. They shall be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity 
and I will remember their sin no more. So it's future. So as you hear this from the lips of Jeremiah the prophet, right away you should be saying, verse 31, well, when? When will this be? It says the days are coming. What's that going to look like? How will we know they're here? What will be the markers or triggers when this, this day comes? This sounds like an amazing thing. God's work on the human heart in a whole new way, instead of just covenants on the outside, rules externally, when God does something different on the inside of a person, I want to know more about that. We'll go to Ezekiel 36. God says very similar things about the same, same type of ministry. And there's a whole section here, beginning at verse 22, that's kind of a run-up, and I'll let you take a look at that. I'm going to go straight to verse 26, where God says through Ezekiel, and I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh, hard-heartedness, and I'll give you a heart of flesh, and I'll put my spirit within you. Okay, stop for a moment. Please just note that phrase mentally. Take a little snapshot, screenshot that for a moment. I'll put my spirit within you. It's going to show up again in just a moment. I'll put my spirit within you. I'll cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people. I will be your God. I'll deliver you from your uncleannesses and so on. So this, this work of God that's being described, this future work of God that's being described is an internal working. It's a changed heart. It's the spirit of God within. Now, all who heard this in Ezekiel's day should have been saying, and when will that be? When will that, when will that, that kind of different work of the spirit of God take place? We saw in 2 Corinthians chapters 3 and 4 in particular, Paul contrasted old covenant and new. Old covenant, a list of commandments. That doesn't mean they were bad. It just meant that without the work of the Spirit of God, you butt your head against them all the time. So new covenant, I'm going to give you a changed heart. So it isn't just a list of rules you have, now the enablement to obey them to love them and obey them. So it isn't throw out the rules. That's never been the case in the Bible. It's suddenly a different enablement to obey them. Wow. So when is this going to be? Now, with that question on your heart, I'm going to start heading to the New Testament because a number of things are revealed in the Old Testament, shadowy form, more detail as we head to the New Testament. I'm heading to the Gospel of John, heading actually to John 14, though I'm going to make a brief stop in chapter 3, okay? So we're journeying along, doctrine of the Holy Spirit. In John 3, um, Jesus is having a conversation with Nicodemus. The Gospel of John says a lot about the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Today, we're looking at just a few things. If you read the whole Gospel of John just to think about the Spirit of God, you would do well. You'd get a whole seminary course. But in John chapter 3, Nicodemus, this ruler of the Jews, comes to Jesus by night, and they're having this big discussion in which Jesus says to him, verse 3, unless a person is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And they're discussing this. What do you mean? What do you mean like a second birth? What do you mean born of the Spirit? What do you mean when you say you must be born again? And Nicodemus gets to a kind of a, a stopping point in verse 9. How can this be? And Jesus issues a rebuke. 
Verse nine is a, or verse 10 is a rebuke. You should read it that way. Jesus says to him, are you the, the teacher, the definite articles in the text, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things. It's as though Jesus says to Nicodemus, Nick, Nicky, buddy, listen, have you read the Old Testament? Have you read the prophets? Then you should know this part. This shouldn't be news to you. You should know right away. You should be screaming. It's the new covenant. It's now. It's coming. And instead you're saying, well, I don't get it at all. So Jesus says, Nicodemus, how can you be the teacher of Israel and you haven't read your Bible? Well, he'd probably read it. He just didn't see it. See, he didn't see it. Well, I think it's a rebuke. Now, I'm going to shift all the way to John 14, moving over large sections of good theology about the Spirit of God. But I come to John 14, and in a moment, I'm going to read those sections that are listed on your sermon notes. So 15 to 31, and then all the way to 16 uh, 15, and I'll probably include another verse or so in there as well. But, but before we do that, I want to just make sure we get the setting, okay? Get the context. And I, I mentioned here, uh, the setting of this conversation is crucial. What would you focus on in the last hours of your life if you were in the company of dear friends? This is kind of the last, you've heard of people doing the last lecture. If you Google the last lecture on YouTube, you'll get last lectures, that's, that's typically someone who is aware that their time on earth is coming toward an end. And uh, that was made popular a, a couple of years ago by a guy who was, who was uh, dying of uh, pancreatic cancer. He was a teacher, so he did his last lectures. It's the stuff you say when you know the clock is, is running out. And you want to say stuff that matters a lot. I had a friend involved in this some years ago, a good friend of mine, Bob, uh, whose brother was a young guy, young pastor, uh, young dad, rather. He was diagnosed with cancer. It was going to take his life, and it did. And um, he had three young boys. And he was sobered up when he realized he wouldn't be there to help them journey into manhood. And he wanted to say stuff to them, but they were too young to hear it. So we got a, friend, got a hold of my friend Bob and said, listen, this is back in the big video camera day, and said, Bob, would you run the video camera for me? So I want to talk to my boys. Um, the boys that they're going to be in 10, 15 years. They're too little right now. I want to say some things to my boys as they head into manhood. So Bob said he sat there and ran a camera and cried as his brother spoke very directly to his boys. Here are things I want to say to you as a, as a teenager, as a young man. Listen to your daddy. So here you go. He did that for made three videos um, for each of his sons so he could speak to them because, because when time was running out, he knew he had stuff to say. This is Jesus right here in John 14. So he, he knows the cross is looming large. He is about to go to the cross where he'll pay for our sin. He's going to die on the cross in our place. Our sin upon his shoulders. That's what's coming right around the corner. He sees it. They don't, the disciples. He's already done the foot washing part. That's in John 13. The, the, just getting ready to head out to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. This is the last lecture. So what do you say? What do you talk about in the last lecture? I tell you you, 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 you cut all the small talk, don't you? And you get right to it. This isn't, how about those mariners? This isn't, this isn't that. This, if, they're, if they're close and it's the right person, you take their little cheeks in your hands. You say, listen to your daddy. Listen, listen. So Jesus here with his disciples, he's saying, listen to me here. And he's going to talk about the Holy Spirit. That's part of the last lecture is the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Can you imagine? We would say, yeah, but when's the rapture? And tell us more about the stuff in the book of Revelation. That's the stuff we want more, and that's not what Jesus gives. 
that interesting? We think we know what we want. We think we know what we need. Jesus says, that isn't what you need. If you needed more details on that, I'd give it. What you need to know, in part here, the person and work of the Spirit of God. So here you go. And I'm going to read these portions. So just think about that context and, and hear Jesus as he tells them some things they need to hear. And I'm going to read these sections and say just a few things. There's so much I'm not going to get to today because our time is, is limited as it is. But John 14, starting verse 15, Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper or comforter or paraclete is a cool word that you can take from this whole text. One who's called alongside para, one who comes alongside to be your helper. It's a term of intimacy and of help and comfort. It's a good thing. Not the, not the, not the rebuker next door. No, he'll give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. So this spirit has a special relationship to those who do see him and know him. You know him, Jesus says, for he dwells with you and will be in you. That's your screenshot. That's Jeremiah and Ezekiel. He dwells with you. He will be in you. I'll come back to that, okay? Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Isn't that good? Yet a little while the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. In that day you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, that means, you know, Judas Iscariot left, you remember, said to him, Lord, how is it you'll manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he'll keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. These things I've spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I'm going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I've told you before it takes place so that when it comes, when it does take place, rather, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has no claim on me. But I do as the Father's commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Now I picture right at that moment, they're in the last Last Supper, upper room. This is the moment where Jesus says, all right, let's go. Where are they going? Well, they're going to leave the upper room and cross the Kidron Valley and go to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus is going to say, oh, dear God, take this cup from me. So they're talking as they go. They're walking into the night. And what follows then, this is, this is walking and talking. So this part, next part, chapter 15, the vine and the branches and so on, they're walking. Jesus is walking toward his death. 
And so 15, then I stop at verse 26. That's bonus material. When the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, Jesus says, whom I will send to you, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Chapter 16, down to middle of verse 4, if I may. He says, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I'm going to him who sent me. None of you asks where you're going, but because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. Isn't that interesting? It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come. This helper the spirit of truth. See, if I go, Jesus says, I'll send him to you. When he comes, he'll convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they don't believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he'll guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things to come. He will glorify me. He'll take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said, he'll take what is mine and declare it to you. Okay, now, if you look at my notes, there are a couple things I'm gonna, I'm gonna press on, little buttons I'm gonna push on here, okay? First of all, I just have to call out the strongly Trinitarian language of this entire text. This was our sermon two weeks ago. This would have been another main text we could have taken. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It's all over this text. Trinitarian theology makes sense of John 14, 15, and 16. You'll remember then that we spoke two weeks ago, uh, just a refresher course that we, we just need. In the Bible, God is spoken of as a profound unity. We went to Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. We, it's called the Shema for the Hebrew word hear, hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. So Shema, listen, listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then as the Bible unfolds, by the way, that word one does not mean monolithic. It's a one that's used in Genesis 1 when it talks about a husband and wife becoming one. It's the same idea. So people often say, well, one, this is a contradiction. You know what? No, actually not. Please study your theology a little tiny bit better than that. No, it's the same one of husband and wife becoming one. That's the idea. Uh, so, so. Um, we, we said two weeks ago, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we took a trip into metaphysics to say in the Bible, all three are presented as equal, co-equal in glory, co-equal in holiness. We use the term ontology. Remember this? Everybody's eyes kind of crossed. Now, who's Hawks like? Nobody went home and said, well, let's talk about ontology over dinner. You didn't, I promise. But ontology is a metaphysical term for, for being. It's the study of being. Ology, study of. Ontology, the study of being. So metaphysics, in terms of being, the Bible presents God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, totally equal. Okay? Equal in being. But roles, roles, God the Father sends the Son. Here in this text we read, the Son joyfully goes. Roles do not negate equality. Can you just resonate with that for a minute? Having differing roles does not mean unequal. This is clear in, in what God is like, 
And the Bible tells us, Genesis 1, God created marriage to reflect truth about God. People often say, well, God gave marriage to make you happy. Well, very secondarily, if you read your Bible, Genesis 1, what did God do? Why did he create what he did? To reveal truth about himself. To reveal truth about himself. To reveal truth about himself over and over again. God the Father then sends the Son to be the Savior of the world. 1 John 4.14. In this text, if you noticed as I read, the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Proceeds is, is in the text, that cool word. He proceeds from the Father. Jesus says, I will send him. That is your Trinitarian uh, understanding here in John 14, 15, 16. God the Father sends the Son who joyfully submits himself to the will of the Father, loves the Father. Are they equal? 100%. Roles do not negate equality. Interesting. Rather, they reveal truth about God, how God functions. So it isn't about you. It's about him. So equality, God the Father sends the Son. The Spirit proceeds from Father and Son in joyful harmony, joyful unity. This text, I think, is joyfully, gloriously Trinitarian. Chapter 14, verse 17, it's about to change. Something's about to change. He dwells with you, and he will be in you. He's talking about a future thing. I think this is right out of the new covenant. He will be in you. And remember, we asked the question as we read Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36. When? When is this going to be? As Jesus speaks this text, it's still future. It hasn't come yet. I would submit it's Acts 2. It's Acts 2. That's when the big shift takes place. So Jesus is speaking about this. The Holy Spirit dwells with you, and he will be in you. Those who study Old Testament and New Testament with the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, pneumatology, will often suggest, granted, it's all discussed, but, but often will suggest in the, Holy, in the Old Testament, he dwelt, the Holy Spirit dwelt with his people. In the New Testament, starting book of Acts, he dwells in. Okay? So again, whole books are written about this. You nuance it much further than what I just said in two sentences, but this is a key, a key distinction, I think. I think there's some helpfulness in seeing it that way. Now, chapter 16, verse 7. Again, moving along fairly quickly. 16, verse 7. Third bullet point. As much as we'd love to have an in-person conversation with Jesus, he tells us it's better that we have the Holy Spirit. 16, verse 7. How often do you, do you feel like or you say, you know, wouldn't it be great to just have Jesus, robes and sandals and all, just show up in our living room and give us some counsel? Wouldn't that be cool? You know, knock, 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 doorbell rings. It's Jesus. That's awesome. Come on in. What can I get you to eat or drink? I mean, it's not John the Baptist, so it's not locusts and wild honey, but what would you like? And he comes in and you sit down and you'd say, well, yeah, I'm just going to ask Jesus all this cool stuff. And Jesus says, it's better the other way. It's better if I leave. I'll send the Holy Spirit. He'll dwell in you. Why is it better? Well, I would say this. Because you were here last week and we studied Christology, Right? You remember when Jesus, God the Son, eternal, the eternal Son, always the Son, never a time he wasn't the Son of God, eternal Son of God, when he took on humanity, he took on a human body, which was limited spatially. So when Jesus was walking the roads of Jerusalem, he wasn't in Galilee, was he? He was limited spatially by a human body. So Jesus says, it's better if I'm in your living room, I'm not in that person's living room. 
So the Spirit of God can come and indwell every person who knows Christ as Savior, as we'll, we'll comment on in Romans 8 9. The Spirit of God comes and makes his home in. Jesus said that we'll come and make our home with you. How does that happen? By the Spirit of God living inside of every person who is a child of God. Wow, it's better. It's better. As much as you'd love a one-on-one with Jesus, a little convo over tea, no, it's better. It's better to have the Holy Spirit in you than an embodied Jesus in one spot. Now, I'm going to go to this next big element here and comment on just part of it, okay? I'm rushing through many things Uh, wanting to be as helpful as I can with the takeaways. So the Holy Spirit, I'm saying, fourth bullet point, will be a special aid to the apostles in their recalling of the words and works of Jesus. I'll comment on that one in particular. He will minister God's presence to God's people, and he will minister to the world at large concerning issues of sin, righteousness, and judgment. We read that. I hope it stood out to you. I want to comment on the first one of those, okay? And I have a very specific reason for doing so, and that is because sometimes I hear people talking about the Bible, and they'll end up asking something like this, isn't it true that many of the gospel writers wrote the gospel, their gospel stories, years after Jesus uh, suffered and died and ascended to heaven? How much do you remember 30 or 40 years later? Precious little. You look at a photograph from 40 years and go, who's that? It's Uncle Bob. That's not Uncle Bob. It is too. And you have this argument with whoever's with you about whether it's Uncle Bob or not. You don't remember anything from 40 years ago. So we end up saying, well, those gospel writers, what did they know? It was 40 years ago. To which I say, have you read this part of the Bible? So look with me, if you would, please. Um, Verse 12 of chapter 16. Jesus is addressing this very thing. You don't have to make it up. Just read it. So Jesus says, chapter 16, and I'm going to press you on a couple details. Jesus says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Stop. Who's you? Who's you? I have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Is he talking to all believers in all times or the people in the room? Careful. I think he's talking to the people in the room. Jesus is about to go to the cross and suffer and die, and their little brains are going to be blown just like that. They're going to run like scared rabbits. Jesus says, I have a lot to say to you. You can't bear it now. But when the spirit of truth comes, he'll guide you to all truth. He'll not speak on his own authority. Whatever he hears, he'll speak. He'll declare to you the things that are to come. And I think similar theme back in chapter 14, verse 26, I think it's the same conversation. When the helper, the Spirit, Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send me, send in my name, he'll teach you when he comes. He'll teach, he'll teach you, and it's the same you as in verse 25. I would argue, please, these things I've spoken to you while I was still with you. Who's you? Well, it's the disciples in the room. I was with you. I was just here. I wasn't there. Jay wasn't there. These guys were there. He's talking to them. He says, when the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he'll teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. How did they remember 40 years later what Jesus said and where they went and all that? According to this text, the Spirit of God was going to help the gospel writers to remember stuff that they might not have remembered otherwise. That's what Jesus is talking about here. I do believe there's a broader application. People say, yeah, but I remember memory verses from years ago. Of course you do. Wonderful. Your little brain may work better than you think. 
But I think there's a special enablement here, very clearly in the text. I spoke these things when I was with you, and the Holy Spirit will help you remember. I think the you is the same you. That's how you read it in English. Jesus is promising special enablement to the gospel writers to remember exactly what he said, where they went, and all those kinds of details. So that the Bible you have in your hands is trustworthy because the Holy Spirit oversaw its production. Okay, you with me on this? I think that matters in how you read and understand the Bible. So other elements are in this text, but I want to go to my fifth bullet point here. Acts 2 then describes the day when these changes that Jesus promised became reality, when the new covenant began to explode into reality, okay? So Acts chapter two, this is called the day of Pentecost. Pentecost is 50 days after Passover. Passover is when Jesus died on the cross. The Jewish feasts tell the story of redemption. Did you know that? When you read the book of Leviticus and you go yada, 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 feast, 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 Lighten up there, tiger. They're telling the story of redemption. Really, they do. The the gospel is in the feasts of Israel. And if you study them and line them up with what's going on, not only with the life and story of Jesus and redemption, but ultimately eschatology, the end of all things, you go, oh my goodness sakes, trumpet, the trumpet will sound. What feast was it where the trumpet, there was a feast where the trumpet sounded. Wow, I wonder if that's like the feast of trumpets in the Old Testament. The answer is yes. Yes, dear friends, (laughs) Read and study your Bible. So, so here, Pentecost, 50 days after Passover. Passover, Jesus dies on the cross. The Last Supper, they're celebrating the work of God in, in, in the Exodus where the lamb was slain. Remember, the, the blood was placed on the doorpost of the house, the house protected by the blood of the lamb. So Jesus, the perfect lamb, the Passover lamb, shed his blood on the cross. And those who are inside that house, protected by the blood of the lamb, are saved when the death angel passes over and death cannot touch them, that eternal death. They're protected by the blood of the lamb. The Old Testament story of Exodus is a picture of the gospel. So so now, day of Pentecost, 50 days later, The Holy Spirit is to come in a whole new way to permanently indwell all his people. And I will say this a number of things. The Holy Spirit came in fulfillment of prophecy. If you read the book of Acts as it is written, for all the arguments and discussions about things theologically, I get it, been in them, and uh, have that t-shirt and the medal for it indeed. But but if you read the book of Acts, chapter 2, you will, I, I think, quickly see that the languages spoken on the day of Pentecost were languages known by people, let's just say in town. They're all listed. People were in town for a feast and the spirit of God let the church that day go international, just like the great commission. It was the great commission in action. The spirit of God came and in that moment allowed his disciples, 120 from the upper room, to speak languages they had never studied to, to speak the gospel. They, this was not gibberish. This wasn't a prayer language. Whatever you do with those things, Lord bless you. I'm saying it's not in the book of Acts chapter two. Lord love you. Book of Acts chapter two is God's people, those disciples speaking the gospel in known languages because it's listed. And they're saying, how could we hear the gospel in our own language? Like, yeah, well, that's pretty clear what's going on. You're hearing the gospel. People from all over the world. It's the great commission in just a microcosm on one day. The day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit coming. And I'm just going to reference, I'm going to give you a referenced tour of Romans 8. My next section there, 
Don't worry, I'm not going to read the whole Romans 8. It's pretty long. I'm going to reference three things and encourage you to read the rest of it yourself. Romans 8 is a wonderful exposition. I say Paul rejoices in the ministry of the Spirit of God indeed. Here are three things you will find as you read that text. So for chapter 8, verse 9, to know Jesus is to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. It says in Romans 8, 9, uh, that, that, that if you have the Spirit of Christ, you belong to him. If you don't have the Spirit of Christ, you don't belong to him. Uh, perhaps you have it there in front of you. Uh, it's said better than I said it. If you don't have the Spirit of Christ, you don't belong to him. The converse then would also be true. If you, have the, if you know Christ is your Savior, the Holy Spirit dwells within you. The issue isn't can you get more of the Holy Spirit, it's whether or not the Holy Spirit can get more of you. But if you know Christ, the Spirit of God dwells in you, according to that text and others that I would suggest. So to know Jesus is to be indwelt by the Spirit of God. Next, the Spirit of God helps us to follow Jesus and to know God as our good Father. That's verses 12 through 17. I'm describing three highlights. Verses 12 to 17, um, all of us come to a discussion of God as our Father with different backgrounds. Some of us had a good, good father as a human father and rejoice in the love we received. Others of us know some deficits that are just different from one person to another. This text points us to God as our good, good father and the spirit of God who helps us to know him as our good father. The spirit helps us to cry out, Abba, Father, not to place on God the deficits we may have known or as we as men may have produced. The Spirit of God helps us to relate to God as to a good, good Father who is never absent, who is never, who is never capricious, who is never just there to injure you, who's never missing on the day you need him. No, he's a good, good Father. He is. And the Spirit of God helps us to know him as our good, good Father. Father. And a, a quick, I, I just love to address these things when they come up in the text. If you have Romans 8 open in front of you, could I just, this is just a little, be careful as you, as I, I love Bible translations. I try to buy them all. I love buying Bibles, uh, books in general, but Bibles especially. I think I have a copy of about every version anyway, and some others that are in other languages because I think they're cool. Um, I noticed some things in newer translations that trouble me here and there. And in this day of, of inclusion, it begins to affect our Bible translations, sometimes in helpful ways. And may I say, just be careful of this, be aware, sometimes in unhelpful ways. And so in Romans 8, verse 12, so then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh. Some of you have like a, an NIV or even the 2020 NAS. It probably will say there, so then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors, not to the flesh. That's fine. That's not a problem because it's an address to a specific audience. But there are fine points of theology where in some cases the term sons is a better theological translation. And today's modern versions keep, they always want to say sons and daughters everywhere you can. You may have noticed that. And again, in some areas where it's an address, theological precision isn't the point. But there are points of theological precision where the and daughters dilutes some wonderful truth. I'll give you two things real quick. You just think about this as you read your Bibles. Here's one. In, in Old Testament contexts, sons were inheritors. 
daughters were not. And you can say it shouldn't have been that way. And go ahead and yell if you like. I'm just saying what it was. That's all. I just said what it was. Don't, don't shoot the messenger. So to be a son then was to be an inheritor. That's kind of cool. And an even bigger one. The Bible, this big theology, when you come to Christ, you are in him. You are in him. He is the eternal, what is it? Son of God. You are in him. Jesus is not the eternal daughter of God. He's the eternal son of God. When you are in him, you, you are able then to relate to God as Jesus because you are in him. Oh, there's a huge <laughs> volumes on this topic. So you relate to God the Father as Jesus the Son. So you are in him. You're able then to join him as a relating to him as an eternal son. Wow, because you're in him. It's similar to, 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 to me as a male. I'm part of the bride of Christ. Christ is the bridegroom of the church. Should I be offended? No, I should lighten up. And trying to, instead of trying to fix the text to make Jay happier, I should say, praise the Lord. I'm part of the church, the bride of Christ. No, I'm not offended as a male. It's glorious, glorious truth. So relax. There are places where I, I would argue and could do so at greater length in another setting that sons is a better translation. Every time it says sons and you go daughters, there are times, yes, that's wonderful. And other times you go, oh, you blew it. You blew it. You missed something. So agree or disagree, love me or hate me, don't, don't meet me in the parking lot. Not today, okay? Finally, Romans 8, then that final point, the active presence of the Holy Spirit is a promise of things to come. Romans 8, 23 talks about the Spirit of God as first fruits. Promise of things to come, the glory of God. And I'll let you read all of that. Our time is gone. Paul rejoices in the ministry of the Spirit of God, and you should too. The Spirit of God is to be your comforter and your friend, the one who mediates the presence of God to you on a daily basis, the one, according to Romans 8, 26, who helps us when you don't know how to pray. How many times you say, I have no words? The Spirit of God comes alongside. He has words and will pray for you, Romans 8, 26. Many times I'm there. Lord, I don't know how to pray. I don't know how to pray on this. Thank you that you do. Pray on my behalf, Spirit of God. I'd like to pray for us. If you would join me, please, as we stand. I'd like to dismiss us with prayer. Oh, so much we get to think about today. As I mentioned, Pastor Ben next week, the study of sin. You'll want to come. You'll be encouraged because it points to Jesus. Pray with me. Father, thank you so much for the morning. Thank you for the doctrine of pneumatology, the Spirit of God. Thank you for the person and work of this paraclete, this one who comes alongside us at our point of need and turns us to you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for this. Bless and keep your people this week as we go from here. Encourage us in all things holy is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.